Hey everybody, welcome to episode 12, one, two of the Mountain Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Lee, with my co-host, Stephen Lewis. Hello. How's it going, man? Good. We are not at my house. We are not in the old Trainer Road HQ. We are at the new Trainer Road HQ. <laughs> and it's still a work in progress. We're, we're getting, there's a lot of like custom made furniture that's going to take a long time and all that stuff. Herman Miller, man. Yes. It happens. The finest. Yep. Um, what do you think, man? It's beautiful already. It's pretty cool, right? Even in disarray, this place is beautiful. Yeah, it's going to be pretty sweet. So um, at some point, we'll have a grand opening. If any of you guys are local in the Reno area or anything else, um, and you want to stop by and check it out, uh, let me know. Just say Steve invited you and walk in. (laughs) Just act like you belong. It's fine. Just let me know first. We did have a makeup sales lady, um, or saleswoman, I guess you would call her. Just salesperson is probably the best way to say that. Well, she's Um, a lady. She's a sales lady. True. Yeah. Yeah. She, um, she came in, she just like walked in and tried to sell us some, some makeup stuff. And we realized that we need to have like a system for that. Uh, we need to have like a, a better security system so people don't just walk in. So, like a receptionist that says, hey, go away. Which we have, but we just, then she basically told her to, to go away. But yeah. Anyways, don't want just waltz in. Um, shoot me, shoot us an email. You no, just do waltz that. in for the party. Yeah. Not <laughs> yes, in general yeah. yes, waltz yes. in. And you can do that at mtbpodcast.com. You can go on there, listen to the latest episodes, share the podcast super easily right there from, from the website. Uh, you can submit us questions through there as well. We'll get to your questions a little later. And uh, yeah, it's a good resource. And once again, like I've said before, soon enough we're going to have some cool content that will be written on there too so you can reflect on a lot of the things we say. We'll actually have them written down so then you can find them and and kind of bookmark them, which will yes. be nice and easy. So pretty good stuff. Uh, first of all, before we get into anything, I wanted to cover some of the reviews a lot of you have left reviews this week. Yeah, we had a lot. We got like 11 reviews in the, this week alone. Yeah. Uh, first one from John. He says, I'm hooked. I uh, love the podcast so, so, so much better than all the other mountain bike podcasts. That's really one of the main motivations why we had this. Yeah. We felt like people weren't doing the mountain bike podcast world justice, right? Imagine if we tried. <laughs> it'd be pretty, <laughs> then it'd be, we'd own the whole thing, right? We should start trying more. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Keep them coming, guys. Looking forward to the next episode. Please make them longer or twice a week. I need more. Twice a week could happen in the future. Um, I think that at that point, though, because it does take a good amount of time. It does. You know, I mean, it takes Steven's time. It takes my time, uh, you know, and and a lot of prep work goes into it, too. And you've got a child and a wife. Yeah. I've got a girlfriend and a dog. Yes. And, well, two two dogs. dogs. Yeah. You've got two dogs, too. True. Yeah. Um, But, you know, it, it takes a lot of time. So I think that for that to happen... And this is not me asking for advertising. We're still not even sure if we want to take advertising for this, you know. But I think that we would need it would need to somehow that time would have to be compensated because I'd be I'd be dedicating a lot of time to this, absolutely, like a lot. And we already are, yeah. so it'd be double. Um, so, but just the same, we want to we want to give you all the content we can. Um, next one, uh, let's see. This one says so good. Nothing better than throwing this on during the long Minnesota winter. Stoke level high, awesome. Uh, great podcast. This is the best cycling related podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, another one. He says, hard to decide if this is my favorite podcast or the trainer road is my favorite. I'm going to get a little prideful here and say that I am the common denominator between the two. What do you think? I mean, and bikes. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not the why it's my, his favorite. I'm sure it's not. I apologize for that. That was just a moment to falsely gloat. Um, I just don't have a common denominator in the trainer road, so I just don't have anything to say. <laughs> there we go. Either way, this is as good as it gets when it comes to mountain biking. Great news tips and covers all aspects of mountain biking. Oh, yes. One more thing. Yeti drink. Uh, so there we go. 
Yeah, awesome stuff. Thanks for leaving all of them. Oh, the the last one that I want to read really quick because there were more than this, but I don't want to just go on reading these. From Josh, he says, thanks for answering my question. Being new to mountain biking can be a little overwhelming. What bike, gear, discipline, training, and trails to ride? The hosts break it down well, and I love the format they use. Listen to a ton of podcasts. This is definitely done right with great chemistry. Really falling in love with mountain biking, mountain bikes in general. Keep up the good work. And hit me up if you're ever in Oahu. Mahalo. Pretty sweet, man. Thanks, Josh. I think Josh it. is the one that um, he had the spin bike, the, yep. the assault bike question. He was talking about it, yeah. 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 The guy that motos and BMXs and Enduros with his kid. And, and lives in Hawaii. Kind of is living the, the man's yeah. dream. Yeah, Josh. A little bit of FOMO up, going dude. on over here. Yeah. yeah. You can find us at MTB Podcast on wherever else you're listening to that. Uh, you can share the podcast. Or please share it. That helps a lot. Ratings are great too, and sharing it and five star ratings. If yes. it's less than five star, let us know beforehand so we can change something and then make it a five star. Um, and then before we get into the news, I want to cover one thing. Uh, somebody asked us, "Hey, why didn't you review the Ibis Mojo Three and Pivot Suspension Kinematics on last week's episode where we did the in depth breakthrough Which, or breakdown? What do you say? Steve? Uh, essentially, we did. We discussed DW Link yep. at at nauseum on yeah. multiple bikes already in that. Uh, in that entire breakdown. But if you want to discuss them specifically, <clears throat> sorry guys. Um, Give us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're both kind of sick today. Yes, we are. Um, but we do have um, some updates on yes. those two. So so basically, if you look at the actual layout of the suspension on the Ibis Mojo 3, and then in this case, I was looking at the Pivot Firebird. Either, yeah, Firebird, the Mach 6, the Mach 429, they're all going to be pretty darn similar, similar in how this is laid out. Yeah. And it's really, sim- it's 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 a DW link that, that isn't like a weird variation on a DW link. No, got, it's not like the Delta. It's not, right. Yeah. You've got a solid rear triangle. In other words, the rear triangle doesn't have any hinge points. And then you've got uh, a, a linkage that connects that down just above the bottom bracket. And then it connects to the lower portion of the triangle. And then you have another linkage toward the top that hooks up to the shock. And it's, short dog bones, basically. Exactly. So um, one thing that you see with uh, the pivot is that the it starts out more progressive and it gets progressively less progressive. That's a lot it of regressive. regresses yes. slightly, but it never gets to the point where it's actually like regressive or anything like no. that. Uh, it's still a progressive, uh, some somewhat progressive design, but it's very similar to what you see on the giant. Yeah. It's not far off in terms of progressivity. Yeah. Um, and the pivot is hardly any difference. Yeah. So really similar to that. Um, both of them pedal pretty well. Um, the pivot does start out a little bit more progressive there, which is um, their, their way of getting a little bit pedaling, better pedaling yeah. support out of it. Exactly. But that's kind of the breakdown. It's a DW link. They all behave pretty similarly. Yeah. So, so it's not like we're intentionally leaving them out. We yeah. really just kind of discussed them in multiple platforms already. Yeah, we had to pick, right? Yeah. There's so many bikes. Um, but with that, let's go into the news. News team, assemble! Okay, first thing, Maxxis released um, updated tires, and I got super excited about this because I saw 2.6, and that made me happy. Yes. But then I read that it's only in 27.5 for now. 29 isn't coming out yet. Yeah. Sad day. Because I'm a 29 guy. I like 29s. Wagon wheels all day. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, they also released DH casings, which I don't know. Do you think that's just rebranding the double down? No. DH casings are totally different. It's a full two ply versus a one and three quarter ply. Because you only have, on the double down, you only have um, up to the side tread knobs is a dual ply. Uh-huh. And then it goes back to, you know, a single ply. You know who I bet is happy about this? 
Dylan Santos. Uh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dylan, you're probably listening to this. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Rude. Yes, uh, Richie sure. Rude is definitely happy about this. Richie Rude is known for for being pretty hard on stuff. He he's he charges, yeah. and I know that he lives and dies or lived and died last year by double do, or double down casings. Yeah. And I'm sure that this is just going to give him even more assurance. Yeah. And they don't have a wire bead, which is interesting. Well, no, that's, that's the difference between your standard DH casing non tubeless ready. And yep. the new version is that you're They're going to a hundred gram lighter nylon, you know, pretty sweet. Yeah. So it's actually pretty cool. Um, tubeless DH tires, yeah, you, much. you know, honestly, minion and minion DHF and DHR two. Yeah. But I'm going to just being completely honest, DHF and DHR two downhill casings, have gone tubeless for years. Yeah. They just don't true. have that tubeless corner block to fit perfectly, but they've done it and been perfectly fine for years. Yeah. So this is just more of a weight savings yeah. and getting a more compliant Which is good. Casing. Weight savings is always good. Absolutely. And more compliant casing is good. Yeah. Um, I'm excited for them to come out. And they also announced some some fatter tires, so 2.6. Yeah. With those, I'm really excited for 29 2.6. I would be too, just to try it. Yep. I mean, I, I want to try it up front. Yeah. I don't think I'd put it in back on the five five that I want to build. I'd up. run a two four wide tread, maybe in yeah. the rear, and then try a two six up front, just because. Yeah, I'm yeah. thinking that's what I would do too. What do you think about it running a two five and back? Granted, if you have the clearance, if you have the clearance, it's fine. But I ran two point threes and two point three fives on my five five, and the only time I ever put anything bigger on it was when I was at Mammoth for Kamikaze Games. I put a two five on the front. And let's and be real, it. Mammoth is more like riding sand dunes at times than anything else it's, with all that. DG it's more like pumps. ice skating on <laughs> one inch marbles on an iced over lake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the next bit of news: Kurt Sorge to fly racing. Which, first of all, the fly racing thing. Um, I I saw this and I was like, whoa, that's kind of crazy because, you know, Fly Racing is definitely more of a moto brand. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing about this, I think that, so I think it's really cool to see. I've never been a huge fan. I'm still am not a fan of the aesthetics of Fly stuff. I never have been. I think it's it, old school BMX back, you know, they're long yeah. BMX and then moto, but yeah, I've never been a huge fan of their never stuff. Never been a fan. No. That said, the people there are awesome. Yes. And the people at WPS Western power sports, which is kind of their, their partner company or sister company. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so it, I'm excited to see it. I, I like seeing fly do that and, and make some headway. Um, I just, I don't know if I would ever personally buy this stuff because I, it's a taste thing. I'm just yeah. not into the style of their stuff that they have. I like, but it doesn't mean it can't get good. It exactly. can't have gotten better over the yep. years, but in general, I agree with you. Yeah. I'm more of a pock guy. I like that. It's like, I can't think of two, you know, more opposites, right? Fly and pock. Pock is very minimalist and clean and simple and understated. And then you have on the other end flies pretty loud. Yeah. But you know, when you, when we go or when I go to like a downhill race or anything else like that, like kamikaze games, yeah. you have all that. I saw a whole lot of fly because the downhill world. Loves I think they that. even had a booth there. Yeah, I think so. So, so pretty cool. And Kurt Sorge is a really nice dude. I've never met him, but just, you know, being friends with Paul and, and plenty of other folks like that, they've always spoken really highly of him. Of course. So yeah, really good guy. Um, this is a, a news item that I'm not wild about. It's the one up switch chainring system. And it has me wondering what all the fuss is about. Have you, did you see this at all, Steven? I don't know if you saw it. Yeah, this is the new quick release chainring system. And it's like not even really quick release. No. Because so basically all it has is it has um, like a self, uh, so it has a bolt that, that doesn't move at all, right? So you can just, so it's just like you don't have to have an Allen key going in the front of your chainring or on the front chainring bolt and then in the back. 
Yeah. You just have one and then you like rotate it into place. But kind of like the, the, when I looked at it, I was like, Oh, is it must be like sometimes like you press like a collar or something, you can pop it loose and pull it out. No, you still have to use your Allen key to pull out the four bolts. Like, yeah. and, and also the, the one thing that's tricky with this with me is, um, so basically what are you saying with this, right? As a product from the product or marketing perspective, like basically you're saying that you need to change the front ring for different situations on the fly because changing the front ring is possible right now. This is making it easier, but they're pitching it like it's something that you would want to do on the fly. And I, I don't think that that is necessary with, especially when we're looking at E13 cassettes going down to a nine. Yeah. And then all the way up to a, you know, 48, 46 46 or 44. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which we'll get into the 48 a little bit later, but, but yeah, I just don't, I don't think that there's a use case for this. I think it's just like, I think it's just a, like a different mousetrap and that's it. Yeah. In my opinion, you know, there's the, there's people that, that claim race faces, cinch interface and, you know, certain, uh, like the BB 30 interface, the Cannondale SI interface, all of those yeah. different interfaces on the 30 millimeter spindles are an interface that creates some sort of wear over time. Right. Whereas like with E13, they have their new P3 setup, which is actually an industrial design used on spindles since the mid 80s. Right. So, you know, they're what they're basically trying to do is they're making it so that you're not on off, on off, on off every time you want to change, you know, your chain ring. You're not pulling your crank arm off your spindle. It makes sense. So it's a little easier, so, but I, I guess I should have said that it has a spider. The spider stays put and then you just change the chain ring. Yes, yeah, so you just change the outer ring. So it's spiders are back in vogue. Yeah. All of a sudden. All of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not made of carbon, I don't care. Yeah. I, I just, I don't. Really, uh, I think it's just one up trying to have another product to sell. I agree, and I I think one up does some cool stuff. I really do, but this is one where I'm just like, man, I don't get it. So it's just another way of trying to skin Doctor Evil's, you know, hairless cat. (laughs) Yeah, and if you're really getting down to it, then like, okay, so why can't I run a two by? Because then I don't have to change anything out. Yeah, you know, so it's kind of like I just yeah. So is this iteration? Is this regressive? Is this progressive? What is this? And and how many people are really getting to a situation where you are spinning out? Nobody. Like honestly, XC racers are probably going to be the closest ones to that because they'll have flat road sections or anything like that. Yeah. And to be honest, we're not getting there. We're not spinning. We're not spinning out. So it's. I think we're fine. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. On a really good note, Ibis announced a seven-year warranty up from their three-year warranty on all their frames and wheels manufactured after January uh, 2016. Which is cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Good to see brands like this, like just stepping up and putting more behind it. Yeah, Um, and there's no reason behind it. Like, why did they do it? It doesn't matter. It's, yeah. you know, Yeti did go to the five-year when they introduced the the Turk series and Carbon series. Yeah. So, that's cool and all, but I do like that they're just like, you know what? Yeah, let's just go to seven. Let's it just, just makes me feel more confident <clears throat> if I'm looking at buying an Ibis. Yeah. And the beauty, you know, and the thing a lot of people don't know about a lot of their new bikes is that they have their no fault or crash replacement programs. That's right. For lifetime. Yeah. And so that's actually really cool um, that, you know, that Ibis also is following suit with that. Kudos to them. Yeah. Uh, this one, I guess we're, we're doing a, a back and forth here. Vernon Felton, uh, one of my, I, I like his writing a lot. I think that it's very, uh, very personal and very easy to read. Like he just, it, you feel like you're speaking to Vernon when he writes. Yeah. And I, Vernon's a really bright guy, um, knows a lot about the mountain biking world. Anyways, like his stuff. Don't want to fanboy too hard. He interviewed Dave Weens. 
who we've covered recently is the new president of IMBA yeah. or executive director. Uh, and the in as I read the interview, as it progressed, I became less confident in Dave Weens. We've talked about this recently and, yep. and his changing stance on wilderness. And But Vernon, maybe he asked him this and maybe it wasn't included, but there was nothing about bikes in the wilderness at all. No. About the STC's efforts, nothing like that. Um, about and the ban probably, on bikes and wilderness. I hate to say it, but that's probably on purpose. I'm probably right. Yeah. It's, and maybe Vernon just knew where it was going to go because as the interview went on, he kind of got the vibe like that Dave was kind of just like, I want to do my own thing, you know? And, yeah. and maybe that's not the case. Dave, if you hear this, please let us know if that's not the case. Yeah. And we can talk. And I want to understand what you actually have planned to do here um, to, to help out. IMB or to make IMBA more effective in helping out mountain biking instead of standing in its way. Exactly. No, absolutely. Yeah. Sedona mountain bike festival happened. It did. That's kind of it. Yeah. I don't really happened. know. <laughs> yeah. Lots of bikes were ridden. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Lots of people had some fun. The one, Lots of stoke was high. The one thing I'll say, and yes, this is my bias coming through. <clears throat> uh, friend of mine was there and he told me that he was trying to demo Yeti and he could hardly get one because they were never there because they were constantly being rented out. And I saw a picture on Vital MTV of the guys there and they were in the booth and and they were just standing there kind of, I think one was drinking a beer and they were just chilling, hands up, because they had absolutely no bikes in yeah, the demo What are we going to do? <laughs> They're gone. And they did mention that they were sought after. So yeah. we get it. That's why we ride them. Yeah. Because they are sought after by hey, us. Hey, when, when we had the demo here last year, you know, I helped the demo guy, and bikes were constantly gone. Like, people constantly. were mad that, you know, five of every single bike in every single size was gone. And it was kind of like... Just in a, Reno. And it was kind of like a last minute. I yeah. mean, it wasn't like we were promoting this with a bunch of marketing or anything else no, like this. we had like, a month notice. and Yeah, and I say we, but really, like, you know, your shop, because yeah. that was the one that was doing it. It wasn't like it was, you know, heavily promoted, but... Yeah. People, as soon as they heard about it, yeah. yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah. Anywho, um, and for those of you going out to the Moab Spring Thaw that's going on right now, which if you're going to Spring Thaw and you're not going to Outer Bike, you're probably a really cool person because like Spring Thaw is the person that wants to go demo bikes and enjoy Moab, but not enjoy it with 15,000 of their closest friends yeah. or not so close friends. That's the cool part about Spring Thaw. It's really cool. So if you're listening to that on the way down, have fun. It'll be cool. Uh, Troy Lee released the A2 helmet up from the A1 helmet. Uh, that is their trail helmet. It has more venting. It's more vented now, which is good because that was a big complaint with it before. Mm-hmm. But it's still personally, once again, it's a personal taste thing. I'm not a fan of the way it looks, man. Why? Because it's a flat build hat, essentially? Kind of. Like, with a big giant duck bill on it? Yeah, that's yeah. the thing is that basically like it, it just looks... Um, it, like the the first of all the vents on it which are functional yes. so that so I read which is good but if you were to take that visor off it looks like a low end Giro helmet yeah from like ten years ago yeah that's kind of like the way the vents look it just doesn't look very like you know I guess modern like you see a lot of them going toward like a different design once again this is just aesthetics yeah and then the visor just kind of like scoops down and swoops like a duck bill rather than being like deliberate and it looks like Donald Duck's it bill does. it really does yeah. And then the Troy Lee designs colors. I I don't I love Troy Lee's designs. Um, I think that it's really cool, but I just am not wild about that look on a on a half face, you know, like an open face half shell mountain bike helmet. Yeah. But I mean, it, it really it's the designs are straight off their late nineties moto helmets. Yep, but it's a taste thing. I mean, yeah, it's you, all taste. That's the thing. And the one cool thing about it is you are getting a unique and cool design. Yeah. with it. So it's not just like a, a cookie cutter thing. Yeah. Last bit of news. Hope. 
um, which they make awesome hubs, by the way. They do. Um, good stuff. They I think released, they're British. Yes, probably. Yeah, I think that very good accent. Uh, they released a 1048 cassette, Mother of Pearl. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a tall gear up there. I like it. They uh, they obviously got you know SRAM's XD branding to allow that ten tooth and use a very similar design. Um, it's a pretty sweet setup. Um, I really like everything except for the eight tooth jump from second to first. It'd be pretty big. You know, it's not terrible and it'll be fine, but it's just. I don't know. Part of me is just like that last little jump. You're talking, you know, chain wrap. Yep. From that jump right there, it's gonna. You have to have your your spacing perfect, and then chances are the ten tooth isn't gonna want to cooperate. No, it's gonna be a little um, tough. It's gonna be a little bit tough, and it's going on gonna want to jump. But at the same time, three hundred and one grams for the ten forty eight. That's light. You know, the the nine forty six from E thirteen is still twenty three grams lighter than that. Yep. So and you can go all the way down to a nine and you can go all the way to nine, but then we're still dealing with chain wrap issues. So, you know, six of one, rhythm, half dozen of the other rhythm and step rhythm and step. Let's go. Yep. Let's get into the questions. Question. That's a ridiculous question. False. That's debatable. Uh, first one is from Percival lost a bar fight, which if we read that again, Percival lost a bar fight. <laughs> It's a good name. Last name, last name, lost a bar fight. I think it's Finnish. Yeah, I think so. Um, my uh, my brother is 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 good at making up these names. On Call of Duty, he had one that was Prancibald Fancy Pants, and then he had another one that, uh, if any of you play video games or into Call of Duty stuff, you'll understand this. Probably the two most hated types of person people are a camper person that just camps in the same spot and, and shoots you and it's like a hiding spot where nobody else can get to it. Yeah. You know? And then the other one they hate is, a, they call them noob tubers, but they use the, like the, y- you might know, but the name of the grenade launcher that goes underneath an AR-15, whatever that thing is. Just a 30 mil. Yeah, yeah 30 mil thing. grenade launcher. They, yeah. they just like run around in the air and just like shoot that into the air everywhere and then hope that it lands on somebody type of a thing. Yeah. So they hate noob tubers and campers. So my brother's name was his tubliness of camp a lot. <laughs> it was pretty funny. It's good. Yeah, it was good. So um, anyways, he says, uh, Percival says, how much suspension is required for a bike to fall into the likes to party category. And this says for Steven. Well, Percival, there isn't really a limit on that. Really. It has to do with the character of the bike. Hmm. It's not a 140 mils and higher on a 29 er and 150 mils and higher on a 27 five. Really. It has to do with how playful the bike is. You know, there's, there's a difference like a Santa Cruz V10 does not like to party. That's a monster truck of a bike. <laughs> it's true. That's that actually a really good just, point. That bike will just plow through anything and it will be like, you are just driving Miss Daisy around on a Sunday morning. Yeah. Like, it's basically just like pounding NyQuil, extra strength NyQuil at all times. And it's just kind of rolling down the trail. It. Yeah. 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 So, so there really isn't a, a, a specific number on that. It's more of the character of the bike. Huh? this likes to party category. I could see people actually saying like, that's like one of the, um, like the, the features or like the marketing points for the bike, like likes to party <laughs> and it's and like three and a half stars. Yeah, or four yeah, and a half stars. Exactly. Yeah. You'll be able to claim it at okay. some point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John, uh, and this is paraphrasing. Um, he was talking about a bike, uh, just trying to find a bike that fits and he was trying to f- find out if, you know, his bike fit him best. And to be honest, there's no great way of us answering that, John, just cause we don't know your exact measurements and all that stuff. But he mentioned standover height 
And I've actually seen people using standover height as kind of like a way to measure which bike fits them best. Is that a bad thing to do, Steven? On a mountain bike, yes, because they specifically make a lot of these bikes with extra standover height. Um, especially, extra clearance. Yeah, extra saying. clearance. Yep. Yeah. So yep. on road bikes and cyclocross bikes, yes, that is an absolute perfect way to start Stop. a bike fit. That's a way to rudimentary figure out you are this size. Yeah. What other things should they keep in mind? <clears throat> top tube length is something that you effective should... Effective top tube effective. length. Effective. And you're talking about from where you sit to where you reach, really, yes. with that, right? Yeah. So so the effective top tube length is one thing, but the actual reach measurement is honestly more indicative of how a bike's going to ride. Which is what? Reach. Uh, reach is your effective, you know, from where your... I believe... How does reach go? I think I'm it's looking. from the... It's center of bottom bracket to... To the, it's either to the front axle or it's to the head tube. The I think it's to the top of the head tube. Yeah. But either way, that is more indicative. Yeah, to the top of the head tube it yeah. is. Yep. So that's more indicative of how you're going to sit on the bike. Yep. Front to back, you know, fore and aft and how, you right. know, your weight distribution is going to be. So there's a lot more than just, oh, yeah, it's this. But, you know, generally um, sizing, you, you really want to start there. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, he mentioned that, he had a Shimano XT drivetrain and shifted great at first. And then over time it just started shifting like crap. And no matter what he did, uh, he said that it wouldn't shift better no matter what he was doing on tuning. So then he bought new cables and new cable housing. He thought that was going to fix it. Didn't fix it. And then he got a derailleur hanger or derailleur, derailleur hanger, uh, truing tool yeah. to basically bend that thing back. And it worked. And he said it worked like a champ. Yep. And he just wanted to con- uh, include that little bit just in case anybody has one that isn't shifting right. Yeah. You can take your bike into a bike shop if they're a good mechanic, and I'm sure that they would have the means to be able to do that or get you a new derailleur hanger. And I bet that a lot of people have subpar shifting because they're derailleur hangers. Yep. It's common, I bet, bet, right? It's very common. That's actually one of the first things I look for with poor shifting. If you can get it to shift good one way and not the other, or it just doesn't want to cooperate at all, first thing I do is I go to look for the alignment on, you know, to see what the derailleur hanger is set up as. Um, Long story short, <clears throat> a couple of years ago, we had a customer come in with her road bike. Um, you know, April Wolf, yep. City of Reno, Ride to Recovery. Yep. Um, she works with all of the the veterans and the you know the veterans riding programs and all that. Um, she came in with her specialized and her specialized road bike that yep. had been at another shop for like three weeks, and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. Oh, goodness me. And they had thrown a brand new derailleur on it. They had done all oh new cables gosh. and housing. They had done a ton of stuff trying to figure out what was wrong with it. I think they even did it, went as far as a new chain and a new cassette. And they didn't look at the hanger? So I put it in the stand. <laughs> oh, God. And I shake the rear derailleur. Yeah. Take the rear wheel out. Tighten the derailleur hanger in place because shifts, it was loose against the frame. And it shifts and like it shifted like butter. <laughs> So, you know, good mechanics go a long way and really looking at the common sense sides of things to understand how your shipping works and what it it makes a huge difference. It really does. Yeah. Um, Cool. Cool beans. Let's go on to the next one from Andrew. Paraphrasing once again, he was asking, when should you service your rear shock? In his case, he has the Float X2. Um, all, All brands of shocks are different. But when it comes to Fox specifically, they say once a year or every 125 hours, depending on how much dirt and mud and water you're going through, that could vary widely. Yeah. Um, Personally, I end up replacing, well, I end up replacing my bikes annually. So (laughs) I usually go through one dust wiper and oil rebuild, like just an air, um, just the oil bath rebuild. Yeah. On fork and shock 
every four to five months. Okay. After that, send it back to Fox once every year, but I, we write a lot. We do. So send it back to Fox for an actual damper service on both of them um, and have them go through everything hmm. once a year. Yeah. Most people don't ride as hard as we do, so That's you true. can stretch that out to a couple seasons. Yeah. But the other thing is, if you have a question, go to your local bike shop that you trust yeah, that you and trust. have them look at it and see. Some bike shops have the mentality that if it's not blowing oil everywhere, it's fine. And that's not necessarily no, true. No, no. And that's one thing too. If you, if it says every year and you do it every six months, the, the thing that you will have if you do it every six months is assurance that things are okay. Yes, exactly. So for me, I'd rather err on that side of it. And, and the big thing is remember, if you go five years and you just don't ever take care of your shock, it's not going to be you know, $145 for a service. No. It's going to be $550 for a new shock. Yeah, exactly. So you can hedge your bets, but honestly, just get it serviced. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Mike, he says, hey guys, great podcast. The knowledge is vast, educational, words to grow on. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Mike. Thanks for listening. Yes, thanks, Mike. Uh, he says, question, I have two of them. He speaks like Yoda. Question, I have two of them. <laughs> Pretty cool. Anyways, he says, number one, I have a cross bike that is set up as with a two by in the front, meaning he has a two double chain ring up front. I'd like to change to a one by what bike tweaks do you recommend in terms of gearing and front chain ring? Do you also recommend a different stack height in the front? And what is the ideal tire width for the setup? We'll be riding both gravel and road. So I need a crossover setup. So let's take his questions one at a time. Yeah. Um, He'd like to change it over to a one by, and he says, "What bike tweaks do you recommend in terms of gearing and front chain ring when going to a one by?" Typically, when you go to a one by, you want to get wider range in the rear. Yep. So I, I absolutely <clears throat> recommend. I know a lot of guys say, "No, the eleven thirty six is fine," and it is. But if you can go for like uh, Shimano's eleven forty six, go for. Uh, but you're going to be derailleur dependent on what yes. you can do with that. If you're yeah. two by eleven and you have a mid cage derailleur, then you can run eleven. Like the GS derailleur, you can run the eleven forty XTR or the eleven forty two, or the eleven forty six XT with a one by. Yes, you're able to run the full mountain wide range setup on a mid cage from Shimano yep. on a one by even if it's the Ultegra GS derailleur. Yep. Now with SRAM, the, the, uh, if you go with like the X01, X1. Uh, well, it's a cross G- bike, so you're talking Force 1. Well, yeah, well, well you can, on uh, my cross bike. No, you can't. I have the X01 cassette on my bike. You have the X01 cassette, exactly. but That's you have going a Force to. 1 rear derailleur. And, and here's what <clears> I have <throat> on mine. Yeah, because you can't mix. You can't put the X01 or mountain bike rear derailleur and then use the Force shifter. Yeah. Unfortunately. The cable pole's different now. Yep, unfortunately. So I have a long cage Force, I believe long cage. No, I think I just have the mid cage. Maybe. You, you have to have a long cage yep, to do the, 11, cage. the 1042 yep. X01 cassette. So my bike shipped with an 1136 cassette and a mid cage Force 1 rear derailleur. Yep. Now, I had to get a long cage Force rear derailleur, rear derailleur, and then that allowed me to run the SRAM uh, X01 cassette from 10 to 42 with no issues. In my Super X, yep. I'm running, you know, mine shipped with an 1132 yep. and the mid cage derailleur. Yeah, I pulled that mid cage off, put the long cage force one, and then I went to the E13 TRS race. Pretty sweet. <laughs> so I have the 946, yep. and it shifts beautifully. In terms of what you'd be <clears throat> expecting up front, uh, that all depends on where you're at in terms of if you're going for a 46 or a 42 on the biggest gear, or a 40 um, or a 36. But 
uh, to give you an idea, I'm running the 1042 on my cassette, right? That's what I've got there. And then I am running a 42 tooth chain ring up front. So I'm one to one. Yeah. And I'm running with my 946 in the rear. I'm running a 44 tooth. So I actually have a slight underdrive. Yep. But I'm known to take my cross bike on more like really steep mountain type rides, mountain bike type rides. Yep. So it really depends on what riding you're doing with it. If you're doing gravel and road, chances are you can probably get away with an 1136 Mm -hmm. or an 1140 XTR wide range cassette and put like a 42 or a 42 or a 44 tooth chain ring. Yep. If you're not going to go up anything ridiculously steep because you don't necessarily need that one-to-one ratio from your 42-tooth front to 42-tooth rear, you can start in an overdrive unless you're talking really steep area. So that depends on what you're doing with the bike. Agreed. And the one thing that I would say about this too is a lot of people poo-poo the wide-range cassette in the back for cross racing. They think that, you know, it's supposed to be more like a road bike with an 1136. Granted, if you don't have a cross race that, you know, if you have a, if you race cross and you don't have steep run-ups or anything else like that, yeah. that could be rideable if you just had lower gearing, then yeah, I guess you don't need it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But in our case, at least the cross races that we have, we have a lot of steep run-ups with like loose terrain. Yeah. And if you're able to pedal up them, you're able to save a lot of time. Exactly. And so it's, it is much more effective for and, me. And just for like, for people's reference, the force one mid cage derailleur and the yes. force one long cage, the cage is actually the exact same length. So it doesn't hang any further lower yeah. to the ground on the long cage they just p- take the upper pulley and shift it back that's, away. That's the cage. thing that people don't understand. It's not as if your derailleur is taller, sticking down closer to the ground. Well, that's not. the standard yeah. is that it is. But, right. sh- but SRAM, but SRAM has found is a way different. to do that differently. Basically, it's higher up in the derailleur in the arm. There's different geometry to the shifter. So then it allows you to accommodate a wider range of vertical travel as well as hor- you know with the horizontal travel yeah. that you have. So essentially what happens is as the as the the parallelogram rotates, the cage rotates around We're getting deep. as you're going into the higher gears, that upper pulley actually rotates back and down. Yes. And what that does is that actually it makes it so that that pulley sits with the same chain wrap through all of the gears instead of having little chain wrap in the 10 tooth and lots of chain wrap up top or vice versa. It almost makes me think those <clears throat> guys know what they're doing. I, they, I think they do. I think I mean, so too. Since they fired all their front derailleur engineers, you know, their <laughs> rear derailleur guys are just really <laughs> stepping it up. German engineering, man. Serious. They know what they're doing. Uh, then he says, do you recommend a different stack height in the front? And what is the ideal tire width for the setup? Stack height, uh, if you're talking about a different stack height just for, like, I, I assume you're not talking about one by, you're talking about just for cross versus road or versus mountain biking. I do run a taller stack height uh, on my cross bike than I do on my road bike. Because you want to get a, a little bit more weight on the back of the bike. Exactly right. I want to have less weight on the front for when I need to jump over something, bunny hop or do anything else like that. Yeah. I also get into situations where I can go into stuff and not feel like I'm so far over the front that the back is getting light in the loafers, so to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, taller sack height is pretty common. I run, uh, it's probably about a 1.5 centimeter higher stack height up front. Uh, and when you actually measure the true stack, you're talking from where it sits on the ground to where it actually is. So I run a higher stack height than that. That said, it's still, it's, I think it's half, it's within half a centimeter of the stack height on my XC bike. So it's 
The XC bike is just slightly taller, but that's because I have a 124 with 29 inch wheels and everything else, but just slightly taller. Yeah. Um, so hope that gives you there as far as tire width. It depends uh, if you want to be a UCI pro or not, cause you're limited to 33 C's if that's the case. Yep. Um, but you and I both run 35 C cross bosses. Awesome tires. Awesome tire from WTB. Yep. Um, that's our go-to. Um, I also sometimes run the 37 C Riddler. Yep. Um, that's a great tire for like a little bit of road, yep. but mostly gravel. Um, but I'm going to throw a bone out. Um, the Mavic Sirium all road. Huh? Like, is that like a good, like gravel tire? Like it's a surface. It's one? a 30 C semi treaded road tire that has a Kevlar reinforcement in it, so it's made for gravel roads. Nice. And that is a fast-rolling, ridiculously light, good tire for a little bit of gravel. So you can go back and forth. You know, you're going to want to really tailor um, tire size based on what you're doing. What you're if, doing. You're do- if you're doing something mixed in between, put a semi-treaded tire on it. But if you're going to be doing mostly road, put something like that all-road tire. Yeah. Um, and then um, otherwise... Cross bosses or Riddlers are always a good go-to. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, then the next one that he says, he says, Jonathan, you've made mention that uh, you do many structured indoor ride workouts using Trainer Road, and you mentioned that you love the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast as well. Good to hear it. Uh, you say, but for clarity, do you perform those workouts on rollers, a smart trainer, or both? I actually perform almost all my workouts on a non-smart trainer. Uh, they're just rollers. And I have a power meter though, so then I can match my power targets. And I, I know that a lot of people kind of make it feel, make it seem like you can't have a good experience training indoors unless you have a smart trainer. And I really just don't believe that to be the case. I think that if your goal is to get a a really high quality workout, then you can do that with just a power meter. And that should be your goal with indoor training. Like forget this whole, like I'm trying to make it seem like I'm outside bull crap. Like you're not, you're inside and, and just use the trainer effectively what it's best at, which is a, you know, a really good workout instead of the plan B for bad weather. So yeah, that's, and the smart trainers are good. They're, they're nice, but to be honest, I, you know, I've spent a long time doing workouts on smart trainers and I just kind of grew tired of the smart trainer experience. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying rollers and I use the, I've mentioned this before, but elite quick mm-hmm. motion. Those are my favorite rollers. Do not get, I've, there were a couple questions on rollers. Do not get the, mm-hmm. um, the ones that I cannot recommend are the tax Antares rollers. Not great at all. Okay. Um, they just, I was in, so I'm in a, on my road bike, 50, tooth chain ring up front and 11 and back. So maxed out of my gearing yeah. and I was spinning at 120 RPM and I could only get to like 167 Watts Wow! with the resistance it has. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Right. So I should be at seven, 800 Watts at least at that point. Yeah. So, um, not to brag, you know, but I'm just saying like to spin those wheels at that yes. speed. Right. Yep. So, uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. Other ones, Cyclops, theirs are, are, are not great but they do have a magnetic resistance unit that'll probably give you somewhere around 350 to maybe 400 Watts. Uh, the quick motions I can get all the way up to around 600 Watts, which is plenty for most indoor workouts. You're not going to be doing all out sprints anyway. So you don't have to worry about that. And then the elite also has the, um, rollers and those are erg rollers and those you can get up up to nearly a thousand watts. So you can have plenty of, of room on that. So, and then Kreitlers, I know they have magnetic resistance units, but they're pretty much the Cyclops ones. They're not too great. Um, but a lot of people have them and rely on them. So, yeah. Then he says, do you perform your structured work on those tools and finish workouts? 
uh, to get the miles in outdoors after the work has been done. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Please don't stop the podcast. Awesome stuff. We have no plans in stopping, only continuing. Um, but we're going to need you to send five bucks. <laughs> yeah. Five dollar donation. It's truth. Um, <laughs> uh, that I, I don't care about how many miles I do. And none of us should ever care about how many miles we do unless we want to impress our mothers because mothers are always very impressed when you tell her, like, I rode 100 miles. Or the Strava gods. Yeah, sure. Um, but all those Strava guys are just, they're missing the boat. And I said the gods. Oh, Strava, Strava gods. gods. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't care about the Strava guys. Yeah, yeah, Strava gods. Yeah, well, they're missing the boat too because yeah. it doesn't matter how many miles you do because some guy that's living in Florida can do 100 miles and it's pan flat. Well, meanwhile, some guy that's living in the Northern California foothills in Auburn, he can't do 100 miles without climbing 10,000 feet. Yeah. So it's... It, it, miles don't tell the story. Time is a little better, but it still doesn't tell the whole story because it doesn't tell what's going on during that time. And then heart rate is kind of tricky too. We've talked about this before, but Mm -hmm. power is precise. Normalized power tells you everything. All I do is I get in my structured work there. And then when I'm outside, I have fun, whether that's a group ride on the road bike or which is rare compared to, well, that's not that fun, but yeah, yeah, exactly. The majority of my time when I'm outside is spent on my mountain bike, just doing proper proper things that any good human would do. Yeah. You know, if you have time to ride outside, you ride a mountain bike. Yeah. So, uh, Josh says great show and useful information. Thank you very much. Uh, he talks about rollers a bit, but we're going to jump down. And he said the rant you had about bike shops was great and got me thinking direct to consumer bike sales is an amazing opportunity for many of us who have been living and dying with the used market off of sites like pink bike. Now with YT, Comensal, and others, uh, which Canyon is going this way, Trek is going this way, Specialized, our Giant has announced this, and I assume Specialized at some point will too. Um, They're all kind of going in that direction. He says, now they're starting to help out customers, uh, or forgive me, now that they are bringing uh, new bikes to the market with using this model, my question is, uh, I've where he says, my question is, I've bought this amazing bike from YT and Comensal. Are the OEM companies going to start helping customers direct more? There will always be a, a place for a bike shop, but the providers of drivetrains and suspension are going to start getting many more inquiries direct about their parts. I feel that they will need to make the room for direct-to-customer market with chat or email support-only options. What do you think, Green Dog? It Just from what I've seen over the years, SRAM in my opinion, hasn't really built anything up for their consumer market. They really want you to go through your local bike shop. The problem with that is when you buy a Comensal or a yep. YT or a Canyon, you are now asking a local bike shop to fix your stuff under warranty or get it warrantied under replacement. We just played footsie under the table. Which, that's okay. Okay, sorry, you've got a broken leg. i got to kind of keep that thing over there. That's okay. Give it some room, some breathing room. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> sorry, continue. So essentially, you're asking your local bike shop to take care of the bike that you bought direct from someone else. Yes. And that's fine, but you should probably be prepared to pay them for their time. Yeah. So the money that you're saving by going with a YT or a Comensal or whatever, is, I don't want to say fairly short-lived, but potentially, yeah, you could end up paying that anyway to get a bike through a local bike shop. Now, if you have a bunch of crappy local bike shops who don't treat you right and don't have good customer service, then that's totally fine and that's totally fair, but you're going to have to be prepared to pay for that. Yeah, um, Brands like Fox, they deal directly with customers on a daily basis and they've got a really good network, like really good yeah. setup already done to handle any sort of warranty or any sort of service or any sort of sales. 
yep. direct to the consumer. Um, Shimano as well. Yep. Is already that way. Um, but now the thing is, I could be slightly wrong about what I said about SRAM just because that's what I've viewed in the last three years. Yeah. Things could be changing now. Yeah. I have mm-hmm. actually sent, um, so I've sent a few things back to SRAM and, and they're pretty good with it. Okay. The, you bring up a really good point though, because I think a lot of people just look at this OEM sale or direct to consumer sales thing and they basically say, okay, well, I mean, if, you know, I'm sure the people that they're afraid of getting upset with this are bike shops. Yeah. And because they're taking, they see it as like taking the sales, you know, the commission that they would get on those sales or the margins that they're getting on those. But it is very different. The brand also has to look at how they're going to maintain those customers that they have. Yeah. And so it is, it's, it's a, it's a really complicated problem because you're re-engineering a whole industry. Yeah. And I do think that it will get to the point where it will be direct to consumer because I think everything will go that way because we have a much more efficient way of dealing with getting products to people than we used to and education, which is a key thing too. That said, it is not going to happen overnight. No, I don't think it's going to happen in the next 10 years. Yeah. I think it's going to be something that's just going to. Everything else, not just the bike industry, everything will change to be more direct to consumer. Yeah. I mean, with Amazon Prime Pantry, like we don't even do a lot of our, so like we we get our fruits and veggies and meat from the grocery store. That's it. Yeah. Everything else that you would usually go to a store for, we get in a subscription from Amazon. It's just direct and it's sent right to us. But granted, I don't have to change the bearings out in the paper towels that I get from Amazon. <laughs> That's you know? true. It's a very different deal. Yeah. So it's there. There are unique problems to this industry. Yeah. And the one thing I will say is YT, you know, Howie and Brad and the rest of the guys at YT here in Reno, all of the local customers that have bought bikes from them that I know and that we, you know, yeah. all ride with they seem to do a fairly good job of taking care of those customers directly. They do. But the problem is when you've that doesn't sh- scale. That doesn't scale. That's yep. only local. So exactly. Um, so yeah. So it's it's a like you said, it's a problem that will be solved eventually as the supply chain or I guess the the logistics of the entire network you know comes yes. together. But right now, I think they're a little bit behind. Yeah, a little early, I think. Uh, Matthew, he says, "Hey guys, Matthew here from Lethbridge, a- uh, AB Canada. I think Alberta. that's Alberta." The Burt, as we the call it. Bert. The Burt. Yeah, I don't know if that's what you guys yeah, call Yeah, we don't it. actually call it that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, found your podcast through BKXE. I'm a Toyota mechanic. and boy. Yeah, there we are. And I've been going through your episodes in the shop while I dream of biking. Forgive if this has been answered in a podcast. Uh, I have yet to listen to, but my brother and I are planning a trip to Moab in October of this year. As you know, roaming data is ridiculously expensive. That it is. Um, I went to, uh, side note, I went to Mexico for a week I called AT&T to ask them uh, to, to make give me international data for a bit. Yep. They said they did, and then I got slapped with the bill. 600 bucks for the month? <laughs> we're talking $1,000. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, a lot of Snapchatting going on. Yeah. There were, you know, Mexican they took care sunsets of that, right? and things. Yes, they did. Good. Eventually. AT&T always does. Oh, Eventually. it was rough. Yeah, yeah, it was rough <laughs> getting there. But yes, so we feel you. Yeah, it's a ridic- ridiculously expensive when out of country. So I'm curious to know your recommendations on what to use on the trail when a phone and internet are not accessible. GPS units, good old fashioned paper maps. Are there any offline apps that work well? Cheers, love the podcast. Good old fashioned paper maps. Um, a lot of the bike oh, shops in Moab man. actually have paper maps that you can buy. The only difficulty with paper mm-hmm. maps is a lot of the time they tend to be outdated. Um, and that can be tough. Uh, yeah. Granted, in Moab, there's not a whole lot of new trail popping up all the time. No. It's actually like sanctioned trail. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of outlaw trails that go up, but. 
uh, it's so it, the the thing is, if you're going to go with paper maps, you should also the, your grain of salt should be talking to the shop. Yes, to find out what you know what's there. Another thing that will kind of go away a little bit if bike shops really do get hit if things go direct to yep. consumer, which would suck. Uh, as far as apps go, uh, the trail for, forks a lot of people use. Yeah, and I know that. Uh, and so first of all, Garmin is, uh, having a head unit like a Garmin is great. And now you can download Trail Forks uh, maps onto your Garmin. Yes. If you want to walk through on how to do that, <clears throat> check out uh, probably the nerdiest website you may have never heard of, but uh, it's called dcrainmaker.com. Uh, Raymaker is the guy that does the reviews on there on tech equipment. They're extremely in-depth, and that's his niche, and he does that well. Yep. But if you look up how to load Garmin maps... Uh, and then DC Rainmaker, he walks you through how to do it. Yeah. It's kind of a weird process. It's a weird process of downloading a course, but it's super easy as long as you have a displayable Garmin. Yes. So like a Phoenix 3 or a 520 or 820 yes. or 1000. Um, They're great. And the cool part about the Trail Forks app is that it has a bunch of trail. Yeah. You can also download OpenStreetMaps uh, apps. Those have... A gr- those have a lot of trails marked on them, yeah. whereas the Google ones don't have a whole lot and the Garmin ones have nothing. Yeah. The Garmin maps that come on your head unit are pretty much have freeways. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of it. Yeah. Uh, however, if you don't have a GPS, um, and Wahoo has their head unit, um, but as far as trails, they're not so no. developed. No. Great for roads, but trails not so developed. Uh, now, is, if you don't have a GPS on your, or if you don't have like a dedicated head unit like that on your phone, you can use the Trail Forks app, yeah. But the one that I like to use is one called Gaia GPS okay. and G A I A GPS. You can download topo maps and they have trails and everything else, not mountain bike specific trails, but it should have a huge amount of the trails in Moab specifically. Yeah. And you can download those ahead of time. So then you don't lose any of the data yeah. and you can download the topo map. You can download the satellite map. You can download just the trail map. Yep. Really cool. So those are my recommendations with that, Steven. Let's get down to business. The business is business time. It's business. It's business time. Thank goodness for those intros, Stephen. Let us go take a, a pit stop to to clear out the cold. We've actually never pit stopped. This is <laughs> we never have. We take a break. It's the first time. Uh, usually, it's all pretty much a live thing. It's there's no real editing. But <clears throat> under the weather as we are, let's continue. We're going to break down. Wheels today. Wheels. Wheels. Uh, and a wheel is not a tire. It is not a rim. It is not a hub and spokes. It is the actual Assembly. Whole, the whole thing. The only part we're going to not talk about is tires today. The rest of it we're going to cover. Yes. Whole thing. Uh, so first off, we're going to start at the rims. Then we're going to go to the nipples and spokes. Then go to the hubs. So we're going to work from the outside in on the wheel. Perfect. Let's get into it. First thing with rims. Carbon versus aluminum. Let's just cover this and get it out of the way. Are carbon rims better, Stephen? That's not a real question. Aha, why not? Because carbon rims have advantages and disadvantages. Mm. So the blanket statement of is carbon better than aluminum is not a good question to ask. It's not the question to ask. I should re- I should rephrase my question then, shouldn't I? Yes. Uh, what are carbon rims good at and what are they bad at? Carbon rims are good at being highly tunable. Yeah. Meaning you can get them to do 
whatever you want when it comes to the ride characteristics. And really, we're talking about flex. We're talking about lateral stiffness, lateral flex, torsional stiffness, torsional flex, so much vibration, harmonic damping. There is yep. a harmonic damping effect of a carbon wheel. There is. Or carbon rim. And so, you can really tell that on the road, by the way. So that's the yeah. biggest difference is that while aluminum, you can use different alloys of aluminum, whether you want to use a 7,000 series, a 6,000, you know, whether mm-hmm. it be a 6061 T6 or a 6909 T5 or a 7005 or a 7075. Lots of numbers and there's, letter. There's, yeah, there's lots yeah. <laughs> of blends of aluminum right. with different heat treating, both, both pre and post how it's extruded, how when the rim is made and it's butted together. So aluminum is a lot cheaper to manufacture. Mm-hmm. It's a lot cheaper to sell. It's a lot easier to work with on aluminum. Yep. And aluminum's other advantage is when you bash an aluminum rim on a rock, typically it's going to still get you to the end of your race or your ride or whatever. Aluminum does not explode like carbon. Yes. Another benefit of aluminum uh, so we're talking about cross wheels earlier. Yeah. You know, when you're racing cross in Nevada, you tend to race on a lot of mountain bike style terrain yeah. and you dent your rims at times because you go ham, right? Yeah. Your bike likes to party or maybe it doesn't. You just like to party yeah. and your bike is refusing to party. Yes. So the, in my case, my rim refused to party and it got dented in and I, this probably is not advisable people. But I simply took pliers and I bent those walls back to get my tires to seat well. I do that all the time. Yep, and it worked. And it works great. So you can't do that on a carbon. Can't rim. do that on carbon. If you've dented your carbon rim in like that, things are really bad. Yeah, <laughs> you've probably done. You're really getting really carbon good. splinters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the, now, also, you can make an aluminum rim very light. That said, they're very soft. In that case, it's not a very strong structure. And rims, period, something that people don't understand is the wheel is a strong structure, but rims themselves are not necessarily very strong. No, they need to have spokes tied into a hub and tension, proper tension applied, in order to be a really strong unit. That's why it's a system. Exactly right. So um, I I do love the the ride characteristics of a good carbon rim. Not all carbon rims are good. That's the thing no. to understand. Uh, like you said, you, you with the different layups. So the, and also, not all carbon fiber is just like a, a a perfect little weave. Like you see when you buy like the when you buy like an art thing of armor all, and it has like the fake carbon fiber on it or anything like that. You know, yeah. it's not like that. Um, that's called a three K weave. What we commonly see, you can see up to like a twelve K weave. That's like a bigger checks in there. There are a lot of different things, but unidirectional carbon fiber is very effective in building wheels a lot of the time because you can get a very specific flex characteristic out of that frame by laying certain fibers in one direction, then layering that with fibers in a different direction. Yes. Really clever stuff. Yeah. And then most wheels mountain bike wheels have an aesthetic layer of carbon that goes over the top. And that aesthetic layer is usually unidirectional carbon because it's kind of ugly looking. Otherwise you see a lot of patchwork, uh, because, but it makes, that's what they need to do to make the wheel strong. Yep. So they just put a little, a pretty looking surface on top. So carbon versus aluminum, honestly, aluminum rims are better probably for 90% of people at this time, just because of cost, Yeah. you know? Um, and the fact that you can service them, so to speak, you know, with, with some, ease. So, um, rim diameters, let's cover this debate and squash this, this silly thing. 26, 27, five, 29. I have a feeling we're not going to squash anything here. <laughs> you don't think we're going to solve this world problem? <laughs> I, I would hope so, but no. <laughs> All right. Is 26 dead for the manufacturers? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But for everybody riding it, 
No. Ride your bike. Exactly. Nobody's going to stop making 26-inch wheels no. and tires. Yeah. They've already got the molds. They've already got the stuff. It'll be there. It'll be there. 27.5. And, and first of all, I guess, what are, what's 26 really good at being, or really good at? Kids' bikes. <laughs> <laughs> you just made a lot of people angry. I did. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're agile. Yeah. They're agile. They're good, simple, lightweight wheels, less rotating mass, less gyroscopic effect. Yes. A 27.5. Strong, still light, good at enduro, lot more. Cause, and good at enduro because mm. they do have that agility that you might need and, and tricky stuff. And they don't have to be ridiculously heavy to be laterally stiff. Because mm. the problem that you think of every time you go bigger and bigger on your diameter, your spoke angles from the hub flanges decrease and your spokes are more vertical. So they're yes. less stiff laterally. Exactly right. <clears throat> and 29... 29 can now be almost as light as 27.5 and just as stiff. Yep. And you can actually tune 29 better because you have more space between the hub and the rim. So depending on layup of the rim or material of the rim versus flange width versus spoke length versus lacing pattern, you can tune a 29 inch wheel technically better than any of the others, which is pretty cool. And and the one thing though, with a 29 inch wheel is if you're really looking for lateral stiffness, so you're a bigger guy or you just like to party, mm-hmm. then you need then investing in a higher quality wheel wheel set is going to be more critical. Yes. With a 29. Yep. And, uh, that, so that's something to consider if you're the type of person or if your budget just doesn't allow to get, you know, a higher quality wheel set doesn't have to be carbon, right? It can be yeah. a really high quality aluminum wheel set, whatever it is. But if you don't have the money to invest in that, then, and you're a big guy, just keep that in mind yep. that you're going to get some, some flex and that's going to degrade the quality of your ride. So, yeah. um, let's talk about widths and when, I let's talk about internal versus external width. External width to me doesn't matter as much as the internal. No, width. it doesn't matter at all. Yep. Because internal width has a lot of bearing on how your tire sits on that rim. Then also the profile of the tire. Yes. Basically think of the tire and I'm making like a picture, like an arc with my hand right now, if you can see that. And basically if you have a narrow width, it's going to pinch the tire together and it's going to make the tire more domed, more peaked. I guess you could say, right? Narrower internal width is going to make the tire have less or more of a, a sharp point touching the ground. Yes. Now, if you have a wider internal width, it will broaden that out. But yes. you can also go too far with that yeah. based on the tire you have to have. So you kind of have to match things up Yes. In it regarding your tire width versus with the rim width. And previously, even if we did this podcast a year ago, we were seeing rims that earned, I guess we were just seeing a lot more narrow internal width on rims. Yep. But now it's kind of like 23 and below, and that's 23 millimeters, the internal width, is like the XC side of things, right? And Yes, that's actually, honestly, though, that's more cross now, even. 21 to 23 millimeters is more cross, and the very dedicated cross country. Yeah, and, and the, like the, the type of dude that's counting grams cross country guy. Exactly. Yep. The guy that needs a 380 gram 29 inch rim yep. is going to be doing 23 mils or less on internal width. But he's also running a 2.0 or a 2.1 tire. Exactly. And he's okay with that. Yeah, and that's the, that's the struggle that you get with this is if you do run narrower rims, you can get, you know, you can you drop weight, which is usually nice, not only in the rim but in the tire. But you don't get... Because tires are being made more and more to be more voluminous, you know, bigger tires like that. So you're 
you're getting tires that are kind of made for a use case that you aren't actually, you know, providing. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, the 23 to 28 is kind of like the, the Goldilocks mid range that we're seeing right now. Yeah. Covering trail all the way up to enduro. Yeah. Um, and the internal width is really important to pay attention once again with the tires, but also keep in mind, how is that going to fit into your rear, the rear part of your frame? Yeah. Um, it's a 20, uh, 2.3 tire. It's going to be on a 23 mil internal width rim versus a 25 mil internal width rim. The tire might actually measure slightly differently. It'll measure slightly different. Yeah. So it's something to keep in mind is if you can get, do as much due diligence beforehand to find out, you know, what type of rim width you're going to need in order to use the tire you want and still fit within the rim. Yeah. It's an important thing to check. Then over 28, what's that best for? Um, Honestly, it's for enduro. It's for the new wide tread tires. Um, when you start downhill, get, maybe too. Yeah, downhill. Uh, you know, honestly, though, a lot of downhill stuff is not going super wide. Yeah. Um, because with the the big thing that people don't understand is by doing the wide rims with the wide tread tires or wide tread type tires, you're not necessarily just making it to where you don't have pinch flats. You're actually creating more stability in the sidewall. So think when you're sitting in a bar stool. Mm-hmm. If you had a bar stool with the legs only six inches apart, it would be fairly hard to balance that bar stool. Yep. But now if you took that exact same bar stool and you moved those legs 24 inches apart, You're that's steady. a super stable setup. Yep. Think of it as the, those are the platform bases of your tire stability yep. is either 23 millimeters apart or 28 or 31 yeah. or you know whatever it ends up being. So that right there is creating more stability for, you know, lateral stability in the tire. Yeah, because you're talking almost like, you know, granted we break traction on a mountain bike. I get that, but we're almost if you're we're in this example, we're kind of looking at your traction as like a constant anchor point of that tire. Yeah. And then the rim kind of moving so if you keep that in mind, that that shows you that lateral movement that you would have the wiggle in the tire yes. side to side. And the wider your wheel, the less wiggle you have. So why would downhill riders be going with something or maybe not jumping to the super wide? They're not jumping to the super wide. They are doing wider than, you know, 23 millimeters, but they're right. not sticking to the 35s and the 40s because they beat the piss out of those tire or out of those tires and those rims. Yeah. So they want that rim tucked inside of not flared out. They don't want it flared out. They want to tuck the rim to protect it against rock strikes. And then you've it's got more a DH a, casing yeah. tire. So you don't have to worry about pinch flats like you do on lighter casing tires. So that's really essentially why they're doing that mm. downhill, keeping it to 25. I think 25, 27 millimeters is usually pretty standard for downhill stuff. If you had a really deep section rim, you could probably make like a steady arc that could be pretty strong with that. But you see a lot of these wider rims kind of being shaped like a U. Yes. But like a flat, not like a U, actually like a box, really. They're becoming almost more box shaped, a lot yeah. of them. Like I'm thinking of the Ivis ones that are super wide. Yeah. That they have. They're almost They're 35 mil internal, 35. 41 external. Yeah. Massive wide and those are almost more box shaped ish yeah and that's and, and that is where you get into situations where you could for downhill where you're just charging through really gnarly stuff like that yeah it could make the rim more prone to damage right? yeah so uh so that's the width side of things i think that kind of covers rims right yeah deep section um <clears throat> uh, just for the roadies in here 
a deep section rims on mountain bikes, yes, it technically could make things more aerodynamic. But it's not done for that. It's to get the spokes shorter. Exactly. Because then you're using shorter spokes are going to give you, in most cases... More stiffness. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And you can increase spoke angle by bringing that that spoke bed further, further in towards down. the hub. Yep, and... And that's how, for example, like Roval just released some new control SLs, which are really light wheels. Yeah. They have their, their lightest carbon wheels and they're deep section. And I saw a lot of roadies going like, finally, they're doing deep section wheels. It's made sense. So that's why it's here. And the reason they're doing that is because they're able to achieve, and everyone's wondering how they got such light weights. The reason they have such light weight in the rim is because they're able, they're bringing that such a deep section rim that they can run shorter spokes and get more stiffness yeah. out of the wheel that way. Yeah. That's how it works. So you, you just been learned, all y'all. And essentially, your rim is a girder. That's what it is. It's a bridge girder made into a circle. That's a good point. So it's really a structural unit that is creating the stiffness. So if you can drop that section in further, you're just creating more vertical stiffness. And when yeah. I say vertical, I mean when you impact that rim against the ground, you're creating more vertical stiffness exactly. that way. Yep. Uh, so let's get into the the things that connect the rims to the hubs, the nipples and spokes. Uh, first of all, the nipple side of things, two main things, really main offerings, I guess, brass or aluminum. Yeah. Uh, what are the pros and cons of each, Stephen? Uh, brass is heavier. Okay. But it's pretty indestructible. Yeah. Aluminum is lighter, but depending on what wheels you're running, um, you run into rounding off of nipples when you get to certain spoke tensions. Which is frustrating. You run oh. into corrosion issues. You run. There's a lot of things that, that are bad. Even when you spoke, use proper spoke prep, um, there are certain things that just aluminum nipples are bad at. Yeah. Um, but all in all, it's really just aluminums are more expensive. Nicer wheels come with aluminum, except for Envy. Yeah. Envy's, com- Envy's hidden nipples are, in which theirs are completely proprietary to their rims. Yep. Envy's um, nipples are all brass. Yes. Which that's the thing I like about Envy, which pardon while I gush really quick on this, but they call their carbon wheels everyday wheels. Yep. They stand by warranties. Yep. They have, they use brass. They don't recommend you going down and like running like a super, like a, an 18 spoke or something like that. They said, go ahead, run more. It's okay. It's going to make you, it's going to be a strong wheel and we've designed them to run like this. Yeah. They also don't say you don't, you don't need to run 32, 36 spokes. Which is funny because when I did, when I ordered my wheels for my 5.5 last year, yep. I was like, hey, should I do the 28s or the 32s? And their tech guy, I forget his name now, but he was just like, no point in doing the 32s. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm 208 pounds and I race enduro. Yeah. He's like, doesn't matter. Yeah. Save 55 grams on the wheel set by getting rid of four spokes per side and, or, you know, per end on the bike. Yeah. And the rim is going to be as stiff as it is, as it is. That's where a lot of our, you know, our stiffness comes from and a lot of our compliance comes from. So he's like, you're not going to notice any difference on the 28. Pretty cool. So I'm running 28 spokes. Yeah. And so they have internal ones, which means that you don't see the nipples when you look at the spokes where they meet the rim. They're actually inside. Uh, inside the the rim itself, so to adjust the tension of the spokes, you have to take the tire off and and take and, your tubeless tape off, tube, which is a little bit of a pain in the ass. It is, but after break-in, I retensioned everything just to make sure. But I've never had to chew those wheels. Yeah, they're so good. Man. Yeah. So uh, yeah, interesting stuff there. Spokes. Uh, so there are 
first of all, how they let's start. So we've covered how they attach at the at the rim, which is with the nipples. Mm-hmm. But let's cover how they attach at the other end. There are straight pull spokes, which are just threaded on the end, and then there are J bend spokes. Yes, which basically they have a J bend at the bottom of them, and then they have a flange. Yes, and that flange kind of the spoke goes through a hole in the hub, and then that flange stops it from going any further. Yes, so. Um, this is another interesting one because a lot of people assume that J bend or that straight pole will be stiffer because it's actually like a threaded anchor point versus well, it's not a threaded a- anchor point. It's just instead of the J bend, that right. ninety degree is not there and it just seats into just seats. the bed. That's it. So what do they call them when they're threaded then? So the threaded ends that is like the industry nine spoke yeah. where they thread in. They just do it backwards. The gotcha. spoke there is no spoke and nipple. There's no spoke that goes through a flange in the hub and out uh, to the rim. Uh, you actually feed an industry nine spoke in from the top. rim into. Is there any benefit to that? I've always wondered. No, it's just a different design. Just a different way to. It's, it's industry nine's way of doing things. Yeah, Easton used to do all Veloflex. Yeah. No, Velo. Velo. I don't remember who it was, but Shimano did it for a while. Yep. On the that was like stuff. a thing yeah. for a while there. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They had the nipple on the hub. Yeah. 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 More or less. It just yeah. like threaded right in. The hub itself was threaded, yeah. and that's where you put it in. So, um, interesting. The only thing I don't like about any of that is if you screw up threads inside a hub, you your hub's through. trashed. Yeah. It's not a good idea. Yeah. So then straight pull just basically doesn't have the J bend. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's. They, I don't think I've ever read anything that says that straight pole has any benefit in any sort of stiffness or anything like that. I've just noticed that straight poles are a pain in the ass to replace spokes on. Yep. Especially, you know, 28 and 32 spoke wheels. Yes. I've noticed a big problem in replacing them. They're a pain in the ass in that sense. Other than that, um, I think it's just preference. The hub ends up being slightly lighter. But it's not really, really not worth it. Deal. It's not a big deal. You know, one thing that Envy always says too with their, and I'm I'm referencing Envy just because I'm very familiar with their building process for wheels, but and not so familiar with others. But yeah. they recommend J bends too because they say when you're at a bike shop and you for some reason have broken a spoke, everybody chances J-band. are you're going to find a J bend. Yeah, but straight pull will be tougher to find. Yeah. So, and most people nowadays have spoke threading tools. So even if they don't have the right size, they'll cut it to the right length and throw it in. And it's a quick and easy job at most bike shops. Yep. There you go. Uh, but within that, there are different, uh, so that covers how they attach to the hub. Yes. But then there are a few different things. First of all, there are bladed spokes. Yes. Which are much like you would think they are. They are bladed. Instead of being perfectly round, they are flattened out. Yeah. And they're bladed now in the road side of things. A lot of they said, you know, that was for aerodynamics. And to be frank, that's just a farce. It's, it's a farce because the rim and the tire create um, an aerodynamic envelope over the spokes, and you never actually the spokes don't ever really exactly. see any sort of resistance. Exactly. So, so, um, so you, yeah. So the bladed spokes thing. I'm not really sure they're the, well. The difference is the bladed spokes do create a different tune. Okay. So you can build around an envy rim with mm-hmm. like a double or triple butted, you know, spoke. Let's cover but, that really good. What is butted? So, okay, let's let's start from the beginning. There's okay. three different types of spokes technically. Yes. You have your your typical straight gauge spokes. Yes. Which means at the J bend, yep, and all the way through it is one diameter of steel. Gotcha. That's it. And it's a gauge thickness. Gotcha. So you've got 2.0, 1.8, 1.7, you know, it's it's just a gauge measurement. Right. Then you go into double-butted. There are 
single, double, and triple butted spokes. So does that mean they get wider? So what that means is at your J bend, the J bend is the weakest point of the of the spoke itself. Okay. Because you're putting a really hard tension on something that you've already bent. Yes. Makes sense. In a heat treating process. So you've already technically weakened the steel slightly at that point. Right. So what you do is you have, typically it'll be a 2.0 gauge at that end. Okay. At the J bend or the straight pole end. Okay. And then it dives down to a smaller diameter through the middle of the spoke where you don't necessarily need that thickness and that, that strength there. Interesting. You can build tension in it and it can be thinner and save some weight. Yep. And then when you get back to, um, when you go to the the very end of the spoke, it'll stay at a 1.8. Gotcha. That's a single butted. It butts down one size. Yes. Then you have double butted, which means it goes from a 2.0 down to a 1.8 and then back up to a 2.0. Gotcha. Okay. Or there's DT um, Swiss has their revolution. I think it's a revolution race spoke that goes from 2.0 down to 1.5 and then back up to 2.0. Okay. So depending on how much weight savings you want or how much flexibility you want to tune into the spokes when you're building the wheel you would use something like that. Gotcha. It's triple. Triple butted is DT's Super Comp or the CX rays from Sapim. Yep. Those go from a 2.0 J-Bend to a 1.7 in the middle mm. and then back to a 1.8. Gotcha. So there's three different sizes, triple yeah. butt. That makes sense. Yeah. Huh. Spokes are now understood. Yeah. And then bladed obviously has, you know, its inherent differences in all of that, but it's going to be, you know, a 2.0 base and a 1.8, um, nipple bed on the other end. And then it's going to be forged into almost like a, like an ellipse shape. So those spokes are then laid up in certain patterns on the wheels. Yes. There's radial. Which Radi- is just, radio radio means it goes straight out from the the J bend hole straight out to the rim to the nipple. There's no crossing of spokes no. in the radial. Uh, you see that most commonly on like front wheels on a road bike. Yes. You'll see that older cross country. It's technically the stiffest a yep. wheel can get. Yeah, because you are pulling straight tension everywhere. Yes. You're not deflecting any energy anywhere. That said, with like disc brakes. They don't tend to no. run radial. They don't because you don't. You actually want to absorb some of that energy on the initial bite. Yes. The the deceleration. My physics professor's pissed right now that I said deceleration. <laughs> <laughs> now and then there's something called two cross that we see. That's another lacing pattern. Is that where two spokes nearest to each other are crossing? Or so, how does that work? So essentially, what a what a cross lacing is whether it's a two cross or a three cross or some of the older stuff goes four cross. Yeah. Cross lacing essentially builds your wheel to have two different types of spoke. Okay. You have a trailing spoke. Okay. Which means it aims to the rear of the bike. That's a trailing spoke. Gotcha. Then you have leading spokes, which go aim to the front forward. Okay. And essentially what they do is a trailing spoke crosses a lead, uh, a leading spoke. Gotcha. And every time you see one of the lead spokes cross a trailing spoke, that's one cross. So if you look gotcha. at one spoke and you follow it from the hub all the way to the rim and you see it cross one, two, three of the trailing spokes, uh. that means it's a three cross wheel. Gotcha. And then if you just count them two, it'd be a two cross. A two cross. Yeah. Now, and then they could even go to a four cross. Yes. That's pretty old stuff. That is very old stuff. Now it's also dependent on number of spokes. Gotcha. The yeah, number of spokes. Yep. You can't do a three cross on a 28 spoke wheel right. because your number of spokes has to be divisible by the cross Max. pattern. 
in order for you to be able to cross it properly. I feel like we're getting deep. We're getting very deep on wheels today. But hopefully this breaks down a lot yeah. of it and makes it understandable. The reason, so two cross, let me see if I remember this correctly. Uh, two cross is what uh, Envy usually does on all their disc brake road wheels. Uh, and I believe. Two cross is what they use exclusively except for, there's one very particular wheel that they do three cross on. Yes. And I don't remember what it is. Neither do I. But all of their wheels, the, the cool thing about a two cross is two cross works with any even numbered spoke wheel. Just and guess what? That's every wheel. Every wheel. Yeah. You can't have a 27 spoke wheel. No, it doesn't. Well, you can. You can't. You can't. Just, just be, be missing a spoke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And now we're going to get into the part that frustrates a lot of people. Uh, axles or sorry, hubs. Let's get into hubs. Do hub so, spacing first. Yeah. Let's do that first. Um, so firstly, there's 135, which was. This, we're going to go. Let's do rear because rear has the biggest differential. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 135 was common prior to the arrival of through axles, yes. really. Thir- 135 was the original standard of 9mm quick release, but then DT Swiss came along and said, hey, 10 by 135 the, the rear wheel skewer, the RWS system. Yep. So that was the first real through axle system, which required specific axles and required Weirdness. Know, specific hubs, but it was a, a good way of stiffening up the rear end of a bike. Yep, it was. And then things for a while now have been 142. Yes, 12 by 142 through axle. Whether it's 142 plus, Cannondale has a weird thing too. They have their, so, and I can get into the Cannondale, the AI asymmetric 142, because that was actually um, designed to be an alternative to boost. Okay. Because it helped increase spoke angles by and made it so that you didn't have to do anything other than dish a wheel six millimeters to the non-drive side. Okay, so there's 142, and then <clears throat> 150 and 157, we're talking wider here. That was more the downhill stuff. That was very things, much right? downhill stuff, and um, I believe um, Mavic was the one who did the 157 uh, originally, Okay, and really that was to try to stiffen up the triangle, the swing arm of the bike, if mm. nothing else. So when we're talking about these widths, are we talking about now a hub has the center part that you see that either has usually the logo of whatever yeah. brand. The and barrel. Then That's called the barrel. The barrel. And then there are flanges yes. from there. And those flanges are where the spokes attach. Yes. And then after that, it usually tapers down and you've got your free hub on one side and then it tapers down with cups or whatever else. It or has. disc brake mounts or, or whatever. Or disc brakes. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but so when we're talking about 135 millimeters, 142 millimeters, 150 millimeters, all these things, are we talking about the actual flange spacing, the distance between the flanges or what are we talking about? The thing is with all of those, whether it's a a nine millimeter quick release, 135 spacing, a 142, a 150, 157, the only difference is the end cap to end cap, the overall width. Your flanges are the same width apart. Your disc mount is the is the same setup, and your cassette is the same, same setup. setup. So it's all set up on the same standard. So really, the, it was the same hub with wider end caps, and, and that's it. And that was just to allow for a wider frame to make a more laterally, a more a stiffer structure yeah. in the back. Yes. Now then, boost came along. Yes. Boost being one hundred and forty-eight millimeters. Yes. But boost widened out the flanges. Is that yes. not correct? Boost took your flanges, your hub flanges, where the spokes mount, yes. and pushed them three millimeters out each side. Which makes, like you said, more of a wider based triangle For when you spoking. look at the spokes yes. as they go up to the rim, yeah. which would make a more laterally stiff yes. wheel. 
which is important because we're getting into, instead of 26-inch rims, 27.5, 29, and some wacko's probably going to make a penny-farthing bike, you know? So we yeah. we need to have these really, we need to widen things out yes. to make it a more stiff structure. Yeah. So essentially what Boost did is it pushed your hub flanges out three millimeters. Well, the problem is you've got other things you have to worry about. Yep. You've got your cassette, your free hub body. You've got your disc brake mount on the other side. That all gets pushed out now as well. Yep. So now you can take any wheel that's set up for 135 and convert it to 142 or convert it to 150, yep. but you cannot convert it to 148 boost unless you do MRP, uh, Let's see, MRP, uh, a couple other not brands. one up, but um, who does the goat link? Why can't I think of this? Uh, Minarets and, um, and a wolf tooth. Wolf tooth. They do the boostinator adapter. And so essentially, what they do is new this end is caps an awesome for the name, wheel. By the way, <laughs> they, do, they do new end caps for your non boost hub yep. to make it fit into a boost setup. And then it gives you a spacer for your, your disc brake. Yeah, rotor. so it, it, it spaces the rotor, spaces everything out. Um, but the it's one not, key thing that you're not getting there is you're not getting, if you're using those adapters, you are not getting, you don't really have a boost wheel. You no. don't have the wider flange angle, everything, or the wider flange spacing. You're just making else. a standard wheel fit in a boost in, in a boost um, frame. That's yeah. all you're doing. That's all you're doing. Yeah. So boost came about for a couple of reasons, and one of them was to make the wheels stiffer. Yes. But the other one was also to shorten the bottom bracket. And until just now, I never realized why I thought that it was a bunch of farce. And to be frank, it is still with a lot of bikes. Yes. A lot of frames aren't making any changes to actually make the chain stays shorter with this, but they claim it just because shorter chain stays is one of the things that gets people all excited about a bike. Yeah. Right. That's like a buzz word. If you or buzz phrase, I guess you could call it for a while with uh, shorter chain stays. Yeah. But basically what it allows is it allows before this, um, you couldn't run a chain line that would be spaced out wide enough, I guess, or, or I guess you, Steven, you should explain this. So basically it allows for shorter chain stays and it allows so that your chain doesn't rub on the tire. Yes. Right? So it ends up, you're running a wider bottom bracket up front. Yeah. You have to run a wider Q factor crank and you run a wider chain line. Your chain line from the center of your frame used to be 45 to 48 millimeters. And now with boost, it's 51 yep. to 53, depending on who it is, but you're also running a wider Q factor crank. But what you've done is by shoving that wheel forward, now you have chain interface issues at the chain ring with your rear wheel, unless you kick that that chain ring out. Yes. Boost spacing. And the thing with having the boost spacing in the back is that it makes sure that you don't have a funky chain line with your you know, your, your chain ring way out sticking out and then it has to cut way back in Yeah, the, you know, since it's spaced out more, it's, it's a better chain line. For exactly. You. So that's one of the benefits of it. Yeah. So now one of the other things, so I'll go back to Cannondale's AI asymmetric integration system. Yes. What they've done essentially with that is they've taken a 12 by 142 non-boost setup. 12 being the axle diameter. 12 millimeter axle diameter. 142 being 142 the width, axle the back width. end. And what they do is they shift the hub six millimeters to the drive side okay. to kick the chain line out, just like Boost does. Yep. And then they take the front chain ring and they take the whole bottom bracket and they offset that three millimeters to the drive side as well. So essentially what you're doing is getting all of the benefits of the Boost and then the other benefit is by kicking the wheel or the rim over six millimeters to the non-drive side, you've also leveled out your spoke angles. Huh. So you didn't need a new axle standard. You just needed to make an asymmetric rear wheel, 
And so this is another way Cannondale has gone 15 miles to go. Well, actually, they went two miles to go five miles on this one. Yeah. Because they used all existing technology, just shifted parts around. Yeah. It's and, a, and kudos, it's, kudos, Dale. Yeah. So Cannon, so that was the that's the 142 AI, and there's a bunch of their new bikes that are actually 142 AI, and then their their plus bikes like the Beast of the East and um, um, the Bad Habit yes. are both. I believe both of them now are Boost 148 AI. Oh wow! So, so you're really getting some. So you so you're getting the offset and the boost, and so you get ridiculous spoke tension. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I really don't know why boost or why the bike industry settled on 148. I wish they would have just gone to like 150 or something. Well, since they already had 150, they should have done 150 and just made everything wider as well. Exactly. I don't see what, yeah. But who knows if there's that, maybe that's the next thing. Who knows? Yeah. Uber boost 150. Um, the other thing that, uh, and, and first when we're talking about hubs, we should also talk about front hubs. Uh, clearly there's the lefty hub. That's unique. Yep. And Lefty um, Supermax is its own thing as well. Oh, boy. There's two different Lefty hub standards. Yikes. And then there's also the SRAM predictive steering hub yes. in the front, which basically is uh, your the, the dropouts on your fork, um, or lugs, I guess you would call them up in the front, sorry. Yeah. The lugs in the fork are splined, and then the hub also has splined end caps. So then it's all pressed together, and it makes like a much more stiff structure yeah. down there. And essentially, it's a boost 15 by 110, yes. but the hub itself has 22 millimeter outer diameter in that whole knurled interface assembly. Yes. So it just creates a really good, strong structure, quench pattern so that you actually get a lot of surface area interfacing to create more stiffness. Which is necessary on the RS one. Yes. So uh, the inverted fork that they have. Yeah. I've, I've just been like listening to us from like a foreign ear and we are saying so many numbers and, and acronyms and crazy things. I, I know. know. Yeah. We're if not talking down to you. We promise. If you're a mountain biker, <laughs> hopefully we're making this stuff clear. Yeah. Boost to be clear is 110 millimeters in the front, 148 in the back. Yes. If you're wondering that. Yeah. Non boost traditionally has been 100 or recently has been 100 millimeters in the front yes and then 142 in the back yeah that's the best way to just simplify things yeah. uh then the other number so we talked about usually when you talk about your hubs it's 12 by 148 or 15 by 110 if you have boost yeah and that f- we've talked about the second number the first number is talking about the axle diameter yes so in the front it's common these days to see a 15 millimeter through axle in the front yep. on burlier bikes you might see a 20 yep. and then in the back it's common to see a 12 millimeter yep if you have a cross bike you might see tens like a 10 up front like I have on my cross bike I your cross 10. bike's a 10 millimeter through axle in the yep. front See, yeah, my Super X is a twelve by one hundred. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So they have uh, cross bikes are still kind of catching up to yeah. trying to decide on what they want to use for standards. Yeah. But and then before through axles, we all had nine millimeter diameter quick releases, which were all one hundred millimeters wide on yep. spacing as well. Yep. Uh, so skinny little guys. Yep. And through axles are better in a couple ways. They're stiffer. Yes. Because they're they're bigger like that. But then also they're threaded rather than just pinching. Yeah. Uh, which means that you get a stronger structure. It's all bonded together much better. So that kind of describes hubs in every aspect of the wheel. Yeah. Man. I think we did a good job. I hope so. But questions. If you have questions, submit them and we'll be happy to answer. At mtbpodcast.com. Before we close out, Stephen, let's cover our tips. Tips. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? Okay, uh, on the thread of wheels, why not? Let's just not stop there. 
I wanted to talk about some wheels that I am going to be getting to build up my wife's bike right now, which I think this is actually going to be an interesting build. My ASR is like the full on dream build. What would you do if you could, you know, have the XC bike with no limits? Mm-hmm. That's what that bike is. Yep. But my wife's bike, I'm going to build up intelligently for my wife, who's a relative beginner to riding. And I think it's going to be pretty cool stuff. But she, we're going to build her a uh, Yeti SB45C, of course, Yeti yep. drink, if you haven't already there. And it's going to have Stan's Crest MK3 wheels. The Mark Three wheels are good. So here's the deal. Stan's Crest kind of had a bad rep well, for a did. long time. Because they had a weight limit on them. They were... I had a friend who had one of the original crests and he hit his front brakes too hard on his tall boy. Yeah. And he folded his wheel from Sheesh. hitting his brakes too hard. Stan, now, a couple reasons behind that. The Stan's crest does use a very light rim. It was a very light rim. And also, I could say this in a favorable way of saying that Stan's has gotten a whole lot better in their wheel building process, it seems, yes. as far as QA. So it's it, now their Mark Threes are awesomely strong. They're still very light. You can still do 1,500 grams for your wheel set, which is awesome. Yeah, for that cheap of a wheel set? Pretty sweet. They're and, lighter than my Envies. And they have 23 millimeter internal width, Yeah, which is pretty darn cool. And their new Neo hubs are supposed to be better. Yep. The one thing I have always liked about stands is they use off-the-shelf industrial bearings to replace everything in their hubs. Pretty There's cool. nothing special proprietary that like Enduro is the only brand yeah. that makes that specific bearing. It's pretty cool. So you can put better bearings in. And I'm sorry, Enduro socks. Here's the best part of this. <clears throat> They're cheap, man. They're very cheap. You can get a whole wheel set for 600 bucks. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're going to uh, be building those up. And really the reason that I'm putting them on my wife's bike is because uh, if, you know, she was a hard charger doing DH stuff all the time, I would be worried about the strength. But she's not. She's going to be riding, you know, just trails, and it's going to be relatively easy stuff, and she's not going to be pushing it. So we're going to save weight, and it's going to be a, an awesome wheel set. You know what I do love about stands as well? What's that? They do tubeless ready 24-inch wheels ah. for, like, kids' cross bikes That's and kids' awesome. mountain bikes. So um, little Charlie Thomas, yes. Justin Thomas's kid, I had to – these were the – I had to do crest wheels for his little nice. Cannondale that we did the whole hydraulic disc brake and one by 11 set up on. He's got a pretty sweet bike. He's got a sweet little Cannondale kids bike. It's one of the little race 24s. Yep. Um, but I use these wheels, these Mark threes in a 24 inch, 24 spoke. I think it was 24 spoke, maybe 28, sweet. but they're phenomenal little wheels. Great wow. wheels. I love them. They're awesome. Yep. How about you, Steven? What's your pick on um, the wheel side of things? So everybody knows that I have my M70 high volumes that I built up or that I bought, um, for Beautiful my last wheels. SB5 and I'd been considering just using them again, and I think I might, huh. but also in talking with Jason Mosler over at WTB, um, I really am interested in their new CI 31 wheels. Okay. So they came out with the CI 24s, um, early last year and they're 24 for internal, 24 width. internal width okay. carbon, you know, 390 grams in a 27.5. And that was the advent for their whole, um, 650 B road plus setup where they're doing the really cool 47 C tires that fit into like a, a synapse or Roubaix type frame, like the endurance frames that have more clearance yeah. for a bigger tire. Yeah. Um, so when Jason, when they released the, um, the CI 31s, Jason was like, Hey, I want you to, you know, try a set of them out. And I just didn't, you know, want to spend the money and I didn't have the time to build that wheel set at the time. And I'm thinking about doing it for these, uh, for the new 5.5, just because WTB, 
just for some reason, they just always make rims that are stronger and yep. better than most other brands out there. They do. And, you know, these are going to be, these are, I guarantee these are made in Taiwan. That's yep. where their, you know, manufacturing plant is. But that's not a problem anymore. No, it's really not. And the thing is, if Jason says they're good, he is one of those guys that I trust his word. He would not. Jason he, being. Jason Mosler is yep. the OE product manager for uh, WTB. for WTB overall. So yeah. any of your bikes that come with WTB product on them, chances are he's the one who worked that deal with whoever the, gotcha. the OE is. And he's just a great guy, and he's you know very engineer minded. Um, so these will be thirty one millimeter internal width. These will be thirty one millimeter what, internal. What size tires are you gonna run? Um, I'm still gonna run a two point three or two point three five. I'm nice. not gonna run a really big tire. Two point five up front? No. Two point three five. Yeah, I'm nice. gonna run smaller tires on this bike because in in the pursuit of trying to get this bike to twenty six and a half pounds uh-huh. with yeah with yep. a uh, um, an air shock in the rear and twenty seven pounds with my coil in the rear. Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna be able to run a two five anywhere. And the one good thing about having a wide rim and the not so huge tire is yeah. the fact that you're going to get a really flat contact patch. Yeah. That's and it's good. not a super flat contact patch. Cause I ran two threes all year on, you know, my DHF front and my minion SS. And, and were you DHF 31 tour, millimeter and those, internal width? And yeah. so these, these dimensionally are very similar to my envy wheels. Gotcha. Same internal width, similar ERD, which I'm not going to get into that. Another but, acronym. So, another acronym. Yeah. Um, so essentially I'll be able to build these wheels up and they should be very, very similar to the Envy's and they're fairly cheaper. It's going to cost me, you know, a lot less to build this wheel set than a set of Envy's are. Uh-huh. So there you go, man. Yeah. Yeah. As sweet as Envy's are, they are not easy on the, yeah. on the wallet. And so. the cool thing is, is if you want carbons, the CI 24 from WTB in the 29 inch version makes a bomb proof carbon cross wheel set. Sweet. So That'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for thanks for joining us, everybody. Hopefully, we explained the wheel side of things and a little bit of the wheel lacing side of things, a little bit of the rim de- or rim debates, and also help explained all of this crazy. And I'm using air quotes standards on the hubs that we're dealing with these days. Yep. Uh, let us know if you have any questions and submit your questions that have nothing to do with wheels. Whatever else you want to send, even if your name is Percival Lost a Bar Fright, like that one, yeah. Lost a Bar Fight. Whatever your name is, submit your questions. MTBpodcast.com. You can find the podcast there. Listen to the latest episodes there. Share it. Review it on whatever platform. We'd appreciate it. We'll talk to y'all next week. All right. Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.